You save us, Lord, and bring us from death to life. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray your blessing over this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon, church. Good afternoon. How are we doing? This might be really loud for just a second. No? That was anticlimactic. <laughs> Is that actually on? Can you hear me? Are we good? Yes. Okay. Rock and roll. Guys, I am glad you are here. What a joy to be together. We're continuing our series in Acts today. If you want to turn over to Acts 15, while you're doing that, I, uh, you know, I've been in ministry a decent amount of time at this point vocationally as a pastor, and there are certain aspects of church life and pastoring that sometimes, if we're blunt, they just, they just are very difficult. They suck the life out of you. They're discouraging. But there are other aspects of ministry that are such a joy and such a privilege that they just draw you back, as the word says, to the joy of your salvation. I got to experience a little bit of that this weekend. Kim and I got to lead out on our one-night event this weekend about how the gospel speaks into singleness. Last night in this space, it was such a joy and a privilege to be together with that part of our church Um, And just to talk about how the gospel of Jesus speaks hope, life, purpose into a life of singleness. It was awesome. If you have single folk in your discipleship groups or your GC, ask them about it. It was good. It was a beneficial evening. Um, And then, man, today, when we're done, before we head out, we get to license someone to the ministry, which if you don't know what that means, we're going to talk about it. And it's very exciting and just very, very much a cool thing. I'm, I'm so encouraged in just the beauty of the gospel, the joy of our salvation, the joy of pursuing our Jesus together. And I hope, hope you will experience that with us today, church. Anyway, if you've ever done premarital counseling or just marriage discipleship with Kim and I, then you already know this, but we had terrible, awful, atrocious conflict resolution skills uh, early on in our marriage. It's a major part of our story, just how absolutely awful we were at engaging in any sort of conflict or fight. You see, the real issue here is that I just don't like experiencing conflict or fights or pain, right? And so early on in our marriage, I would take any uh, hurt, any frustration, justified or otherwise, and I would just do this thing where I just shoved it inside of myself and said, well, let's just not engage this or talk about it. And so rather than having, I don't know, healthy, good conflict resolution, what I would do is just say, no, let's not do that. And then I would continue to not do that until it overwhelmed, became so powerful and destructive and negative that it would blow up out of me. And I would have these intense emotional reactions to things that did not fit the actual occasion. I would stomp outside our house like a grown-up two-year-old and yell and stomp. I would walk. We had a detached garage. I would walk into the backyard, and I would punch and kick the garage and cuss it out, which is ludicrous. Like I said, a grown-up two-year-old. And by the way, if you know my wife, this is not a one-sided thing. My wife is a very passionate person. (laughs) We had some doozies, and I won't share those stories here. If you want that sweet, juicy gas, you're going to have to do marriage discipleship with us at some point. And we will spill the tea in that context. Some of you in this room know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I say that to say, 
Kim and I, Kim and I were not good at this when we first got married. It is by the grace of God and the gospel proclaimed through some very specific, mature, godly men and women to call us up into a healthier, more spiritually mature version of ourselves as individuals, as a couple, as a family. And I can honestly, genuinely say that well, more than 10 years into our marriage, we're in the best place we've ever been in terms of how we know each other and how we engage those sorts of things. And by the way, we're still bad and awful and have a ton of stuff to learn, but but significant, in a significantly better place than we were in those first couple of years. By the grace of God, by the gospel proclaimed through specific people into our lives. And so I give that to you for some context, because I want you to, I want you to use that to basically, just in your mind's eye, sit with me and Kim while we're sitting with another couple for some marital counseling. Now, this couple has come to us because of hurts and pains and some tension in their marriage and have asked us to really kind of help do the same thing, clarify how the gospel speaks into their marriage and health and how they connect. And when I shared our journey of growing and facing our emotions and handling conflicts in a, in a way that was actually giving glory to God and engaging the reality of what was going on and not hiding and stuffing and all those things, uh, this couple responded with looks of absolute abject shock and horror. I don't remember the exact words, but the response was something along the lines of, wait a minute, you guys fight? Which, uh, <laughs> bear in mind, bear in mind, they're here with us because they're not doing great in their marriage, right? But their response is, we don't really, we don't really fight. It's not really a thing we do. So you can imagine me going, wait, <laughs> you don't fight? No, 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 we've never actually had a fight in our marriage. So you you don't have disagreements? Well, no, we, we disagree on stuff. We just, don't, we just don't fight, you know? Well, do those disagreements ever get heated? Do, do, do emotions ever rise? Are they, are they passionate? Oh, yeah, very often. You ever raise your voices? Is there, is there anger involved? Well, yes, but those aren't fights. Those are passionate disagreements. We don't have marital conflicts. We have passionate discussions about what to do next. Oh, okay. This is just a semantics thing. I get it. Okay, good. We're up to speed now. You guys fight all the time. You just don't like calling it fighting. I felt like Spider-Man in the Avengers movie, you know what I'm talking about, where he's like, oh, we're using our made-up names. Okay, I didn't realize that. Like, <laughs> like that, was, that was this moment for me. And while this was strange, this was actually better than another couple I sat with in marital counseling who, who legitimately like, so stuffed their emotions so deeply, they hadn't had a fight or a conflict in four or five years of marriage, which was a little more terrifying because I thought, I think you two might end up on the news. Like this might become one of those things where like one of you just gets stabbed one night in the kitchen. But you, you get what I'm saying here. That they, they, had so, they were so convinced that their anger, that their conflict, that their fighting was in and of itself inherently sinful that even though they were obviously, obviously dealing with unhealthy conflicts and unproductive fights, they couldn't bring themselves to use that language, which is so interesting. And I think it actually points us to where we're, what our text has for us today. We're actually going to spend our time today talking about what the Bible says, how the gospel speaks into conflict. 
and how we engage conflict to the glory of God and for the sake of the kingdom. We spent last week in the beginning of Acts 15, and in, by the way, I think this is very intentional on Luke's part and how he tells us the history. We spent last week talking about how hard the church fought to maintain unity in the midst of a really intense doctrinal conflict, right? We read the beginning of Acts 15 and the, the first church council, the Jerusalem council, where they dug into this real doctrinal disagreement, kind of debating what, well, what does it look like to convert to Christianity? How, how Jewish does that conversion have to be? Is there circumcision involved? Do you have to be a faithful Jew before you can be a faithful Christian, right? And, and in the midst of that, the church wrestled to make sure they were walking in unity. They made sure that the conflict was resolved in unity. And today in our text, we're going to look at a very different kind of conflict. Rather than a doctrinal one, we're going to look at a strategic conflict. And we're going to see how the resolution was very different, very different than what we saw in our last text. And and I think we're just going to spend some time talking about how I think that pushes on some of our sensibilities as Americans in a way that I think will be good for us. So we're in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. We read this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Fathers, we take a few minutes to engage your text this evening. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our discipler. Illuminate the text to us. Speak truth to us. Remind us of the gospel. God, I ask very specifically that each of us in this space today, that we would have the kind of soft and tender hearts that are ready and willing and able to hear from you in the midst of your narrative, in the midst of this text. God, challenge us, encourage us, call us to repentance, and may we leave this space more connected to you, more dependent on you, and revived in the beauty and gift and joy of our salvation. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like for us to do today. This is a relatively simple text. This is one of the transitional texts in Acts. Remember, uh, Luke kind of goes back and forth between these longer chunks of narrative and then these shorter narratives that kind of move us from scene to scene to scene. This is the transitional text that moves us from the closing out of the first missionary journey, the first missionary journey closed out with the Jerusalem Council, into the beginning of the second missionary journey. Next week, we're going to jump into Paul and Silas' second missionary journey, which I think has some of the, I mean, just some of the coolest stories of the early church and church history we're going to get to see in the coming weeks as we go into this. But, but this is a shorter text, and essentially, I mean, there's not much to this. It's a, it's a relatively simple story, with the exception that I think, I think this story really just pushes on some of our buttons and our sensibilities. 
we're presented here with a pretty just blatant conflict that, that doesn't result in kind of tying a bow on it and prettily just settling everything. It, it actually results in some rifts and some separation. It's not the kind of thing we necessarily jump to in terms of like, oh, here's a cool story about church life, right? But, but I think there's something actually really important for us in this. And that's this. Conflict is not sinful. Conflict is not bad. Conflict is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to know the other party, to know the other person more clearly. It's an opportunity to clarify the mission that God has called you to. And it's an opportunity to multiply the mission that God is working in the world around us. I know I just landed on three points there. I didn't do that on purpose, I promise. But, but I'm serious when I say this. If, if you're anything like me, I know some of you in this room are like the bull in the china shop type person who's like, I enjoy conflict. I, I don't know what you're talking about. This, this gets me, like, I'm excited about this. That's not me, right? I, as, as I shared at the beginning, I am a conflict-averse person with, with pretty, pretty negligible to medium-grade skills for even resolving them. And I, I think there is just a larger cultural sense that conflict should be avoided when possible. And oftentimes should be avoided even when it's not really possible and ignored even when it can't really be avoided. You, you get what I'm saying? And this pushes on some of that in some ways that I think will just be fruitful for us. So let's jump into this. Remember, let's put ourselves kind of back into the narrative, and that'll kind of lead us into this. Remember, we're, we're jumping in in this transitional period. This is right at the end of the first missionary journey. So go back a couple chapters, and the church at Antioch, which is up north and a little east of the church at Jerusalem, that had kind of risen up to be one of the most prominent churches after the church at Jerusalem grew up, they set aside and sent Paul and Barnabas on a distinctly missionary journey. This was a, a new kind of phase in church life. Up until that point, from Pentecost up till that point, there were plenty of people traveling and preaching the gospel and taking the message of Jesus with them. But Paul and Barnabas hand us the first intentionally missionary journey. It's not that Paul and Barnabas are going on a trip and they just are preaching the gospel wherever they go. It's that the Holy Spirit tells this church, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas and send them to go preach the gospel. And so they go on this journey. They, they break off from the church at Antioch, sent, commissioned by that church, and they sail to the island of Cyprus and they make their way kind of north and west up into the mainland of modern-day Turkey, what was called Macedonia and Galatia at that point. And they work their way up into Galatia and travel in kind of this large circle, preaching the gospel and planting churches. If you, if you have a Bible, like a fancier Bible like this, oftentimes they have a little map in the back where you can see kind of the line of the route they took out of Antioch across the island up into the mainland they travel around. It's a really powerful story. And if you recall, all the way back in Acts 13, initially they had an assistant with them. A young man that we've read about several times in Acts named John Mark is sent by the church at Antioch to go with Paul and Barnabas, essentially as their ministry intern, right? Like the guy who has to fetch the coffee and make sure their bags are carried from place to place. And they make their way across Cyprus, preaching the gospel, planting some churches. And guys, stuff gets really wild really fast. 
The story in the island of Cyprus culminates in a demonically influenced magician like kind of going to bat against Paul and the Holy Spirit striking him blind through the ministry of Paul so that a Roman governor ends up becoming a Christian. It's, it's really intense, like a really wild story. After they leave Cyprus and make their way up north and west into the mainland, John Mark just kind of has this moment where he's like, hey guys, this is cool. I'm going home. This is a little little more intense than maybe I initially imagined. I'll catch you cats later. And he jumps on a boat and heads back to Jerusalem. So they go on this missionary journey. They travel, they preach, they plant churches. God does amazing, miraculous things, drawing dead souls to life, raising up churches where they didn't exist. They face opposition from Jewish authorities and from legalistic Christians and from spiritual warfare. It it culminates in the scene where Paul is literally drugged outside of a city and stoned for preaching the gospel, but the Lord heals and sustains him, and they finish out the ministry strong and make their way back to Jerusalem, having accomplished this journey, planted six churches around this region. I I encourage you guys in this last week, by the way, but you should go and read the letter of Galatians. The letter of Galatians was written by Paul during the period we're reading about right now, right after the first missionary journey and before he started the second missionary journey. He wrote the letter of Galatians to encourage those churches that were started on the first journey. In fact, the text we read last week, Paul kind of gives his perspective on it in Galatians 2, which is a little interesting, putting those next to Acts. It's kind of fun to read that. But the point is, The journey is successful, and when Paul and Barnabas come back to the church at Antioch, everyone parties. Everyone is celebrating. Look what God has done. This is amazing, but the opposition isn't over yet. There there raises up this sect within the church of fellow believers who are super legalistic and super judgmental and start building up kind of these standards of, well, these these Gentile converts, these non-Jewish converts, they're not really Christian yet because they didn't do all these things we think they should do to fulfill the law of Moses. Essentially saying, if you want to be a Christian, first you convert to Judaism, then once you're a good Jew, then you can convert to Christianity and follow Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas just basically go, no, no way. That's not how it works. We just traveled around the world preaching the gospel and we saw the Holy Spirit save people and anoint people and and come upon people and build up churches. There was no conversion to Judaism happening. And these guys basically go, yeah, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's not how it works. And this, this whole thing culminates in them coming together with the apostles, the leaders at Jerusalem, and really just debating, saying, we have to figure out this doctrinal issue. What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus? Now that, now that God is bringing non-Jews into the church, what does that mean? And the church council affirms the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and says, you guys have done nothing wrong. God is drawing Gentiles in. They don't have to convert to Judaism. All we ask is that they live a life set apart from the pagan culture within which they find themselves. And it culminates, again, it ends, and they end up back at the church at Antioch, just celebrating, worshiping, proclaiming, look at this amazing thing God has done. Look at how God has brought about unity and joy in our church, even in the midst of a major conflict, even in the midst of something that could have split us apart. It could have divided the church. But look, here we stand unified in the gospel, unified in the work God is doing. It's a really cool story. And that's a perfect place to just tie a bow on it and be like, look how awesome that was. 
But then our text picks up and says, so a little while later, Paul decided to go back and visit the churches and wanted to encourage them. And Barnabas says, great idea, let's do it. Hey, let's take John Mark since he didn't finish the trip last time. And then this conflict rises up where Paul says, no, actually, I think we should not take John Mark because he didn't finish the trip last time. And this says, the text tells us that this, this argument is a sharp disagreement. This doesn't really super come through well in the English, but what this is telling us is this got heated. This was an emotional conflict. This is, this is, you need to imagine a scene where like voices are raised and faces are getting a little red. They cannot come together on this. And by the way, if you think about it for a moment, there's a lot of wisdom in what's actually being cast back and forth between these two guys here. Paul looks at Barnabas and he basically says, I, you know, I don't want to take someone who didn't finish the trip last time. I mean, think about that trip, dude. It was pretty intense. There were demons in opposition. I got stoned. And he missed it because he left like a third of the way through and went home. I don't think this guy's up to it. And this kind of trip is too important to take that kind of risk again. I mean, we need someone who can actually help us, right? But then you think about Barnabas's perspective in this, where he says, look, man, is, if the gospel is anything, is it not grace? Is it not forgiveness for past mistakes? I mean, he can see the leadership potential in John Mark. And he's like, man, this guy, this guy needs someone to disciple him and challenge him and grow him. He needs another chance. This guy is worth being poured into. How will he grow without further testing? A mature, tested, older man can guide him and disciple him. Like, this is the perfect opportunity, right? This is a genuine conundrum. It's a big deal. Because I think the thing here to remember is neither of these leaders is really wrong. And, and neither of these leaders is in obvious sin. So what do they do with this conundrum? They split. They split up. They end their ministry partnership. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes along their original route, goes through Cyprus, making his way up to the mainland. And then Paul grabs Silas. Silas was one of the people the Jerusalem church sent up to Antioch in the wake of the decision they made. And he goes the opposite direction by land to go start the journey where they ended their journey, I guess maybe with plans to meet in the middle. I'm not sure. But this is such a wild story. To top this all off, it ends by telling us that the church commends them to the ministry. These guys get in a fight, break up their partnership, and say, I'm going to, fine, I'll take my John Mark and I'll go. And they split and go opposite directions. And the text says, the church commends them to the ministry. The church supports them in this decision. I don't know about you guys, but on a surface reading, this text just, it just doesn't sit well with me. It seems so strange to have this right after a story that is so passionately about fighting for church unity, right? To have this, that if we're honest, seems like way less of a big deal. 
And it splits them, divides the ministry. I mean, seriously, this isn't doctrine, it's strategy. These guys couldn't resolve a strategic difference, so they had to split their ministry. This isn't like the sort of, I mean, isn't this the exact kind of accusation that is leveled against the church today? That we're hypocrites? I mean, didn't Jesus go out of his way in John 13 to teach how important unity and grace and love and service to the other is that the church would be defined by how well we treat each other? So what is Paul's deal? I mean, by the way, if you follow Paul's ministry and his teaching, he wrote the majority of the New Testament letters, he very obviously understood the importance of unity within the life of the church you can look at 1 Corinthians 1.10, Romans 12.4, Ephesians 4.3, Philippians 2.2, 2, Colossians 3.14, and I could keep going on that list. Paul understood the importance of grace and unity and resolving conflict within the church. So what the heck is actually going on here? Is this just an, in, an instance of a godly man not being perfect? And we're just getting a window into a time when he fell short of biblical expectations. I actually, I actually don't think so. I actually think that really the problem here is just the way we as modern Western folk engage a text like this. We have such, many of us, a wrong and distorted view of conflict and even to a lesser extent anger then many of us have a hard time conceiving of conflict that is not born out of sin, carried out in sin, and resulting in sin. It's a hard thing conceptually for some of us to come up with. And don't get me wrong, by the way, many conflicts do result from sin and result in sin, but that is not conflict in and of itself. It is not inherently wrong, inherently bad, inherently sinful. Conflict in the context of interpersonal relationship is simply when two connected parties desire different outcomes. I know that's like a kind of cold way to say that, but I want to detach us emotionally for a minute from this so we can think about this with a little bit clearer eyes. Conflict is when two connected parties, interpersonal conflict, desire different outcomes. This is a difference of will, a difference of interest. If all parties in the relationship are true individuals, then at some point, interests, will, desires will not perfectly align. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is normal within relationship between individuals. And if you've ever been in any kind of premarital or marital counseling, you know conflict is an opportunity. It's an opportunity. It is simply a difference of will or desire. That means conflict is an opportunity to know the other better. A conflict means that you are out of sync in your desires with another person. So to engage the conflict involves an invitation to hear their desires and their interests. To hear the truth of what's going on about why you have different desires in this moment. To engage a conflict involves an invitation to know one another better. 
Resolution of the conflict involves knowing each other better, clarifying the purpose of the relationship, and deciding how the interests of the relationship can best be pursued. To put this in like the silliest possible form, if Kim and I are hanging out and we have a date night and we have babysitting and the kids are gone and we have this limited window of three or four hours to eat dinner, enjoy some time, and enjoy some time, and then go pick up the kids, you know the pressure's on, right? And so we got to get this thing going. And if you know us well, you know that we don't step into that date night with things already planned out. We drop off the kids and look at each other and go, well, what do we do next? Which is not, which is how the conflict arises, by the way. It's not agreeing on this ahead of time. But if I turn to Kim and I go, hey, let's go get sushi. Now we have a conflict. And the reason we now have a conflict is because the last time we got sushi, Kim barfed everywhere. And she can't eat it anymore. And it's my fault. I made her eat too much sushi. It's a long story. But the point is, if I suggest that we now have a conflict, we have a difference of desired outcome. I would like to go get sushi for dinner. She would like to not throw up in the parking lot. And it doesn't align well. There's an invitation to know one another better. Babe, why don't you want to go get sushi? Sushi's awesome. We never get sushi. Well, because the last time I ate it, I barfed everywhere, and I'd like to not do that on our date night. Oh! Right? It's an invitation to know the other better. And then we take the next step to go, well, what's the purpose of our relationship in this moment? We have a date night. We, we, need, we want to set aside time to share a meal and grow together. Oh, okay. Well, you throwing up would not actually help or accomplish the purpose of our relationship in our evening. Therefore, my initial desire to go get sushi for dinner, that's not actually beneficial for what we, our desired outcome. It seemed good to me in the moment. It's not actually good. And so we clarify and we come up with a better solution. We go get Chinese food, which is like one step off and she won't throw up. It's great. But you, you get what I'm saying, right? There's invitation to know the other better. There's an opportunity to clarify the purpose of what you're doing. And then there's the opportunity to step unified back into the mission. Consider Jesus in the garden. To use a way, way, way heavier example. And I think this is really powerful for us because it shows how averse we are to the idea of conflict. Jesus in the garden, Jesus, the Son of God, part of the Trinity, the triunity of the Godhead, experienced conflict with God the Father in the garden. He sits in the garden and says, I do not want to be crucified. I do not want to experience the suffering. And he brings his real heart, his real desires to the Father in prayer. And the father's response is, you must. You must. And in that moment, when they come together, seeing the true, a true heart, the mission is clarified. Jesus, you came to earth to accomplish this work, to fulfill the gospel, to pay the price for sins. This is the moment. Not my will, Father, but yours. And they walk out in complete unity. Complete unity. A scene where conflict creates deeper unity. Sets them about the work of the mission with deep resolve. You know, Jesus never flinches from that moment on. 
He brings his true heart to the Father. And then he rallies himself and he steps to the work of the gospel. There's power in that. His conflict is not inherently sinful, inherently bad. It is an opportunity. Now, obviously, we live in a cursed and sinful and broken world, and oftentimes conflict does arise out of sinful desires. You know, we look at this conflict between Paul and Barnabas, and there's no obvious sin. It's both men seem to be operating in wisdom. Oftentimes, that's not what actually happens. Oftentimes, one person is operating in sin or selfishness, or both people are operating in sin and selfishness. And the Scripture gives us really clear teaching on how to engage conflict that's brought about by sin. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 18, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6, that when when sin creates a conflict, we're to lovingly and gently but firmly call sin out for what it is and bring Scripture to bear over and against sinful behavior and sinful desires and give invitations and calls and challenge to repentance. Then we might walk forward in unity. And there's a system in place within Scripture for escalating that if there is no repentance and no engagement of sin, that actually does culminate in a permanent, like an intense change of category around particular relationships if there's no repentance. Which, by the way, I think is part of why we get so scared of conflict. Because because Paul uses language like, I handed him over to Satan. It's pretty intense. That's really heavy. That conflict got so bad that Paul was like, fine, Satan, you can have this one. I don't like him anymore. He didn't say that part. But you get what I'm saying. Jesus says that when when, when a conflict is brought about by sin and there's no repentance and no acknowledgement, that it reaches a point where you say, I can no longer affirm that you are even a Christian. I must treat you like an unbeliever. That's intense. And so I think that easily can make us very averse to conflict, very intimidated by conflict. I don't want to do that wrong. I don't want to break this relationship. What if I'm wrong about this? Is this really worth that level of intense escalation, right? can just make it intimidating. It makes it intense. Because I really think, I really think it's important to note that specifically talking about conflict that's arisen because of sin, Oftentimes, and what we see in our text, is a conflict that arises over a difference of opinion on what the best strategy is. I mean, these are two guys who very obviously love Jesus and love his church. They went on the first missionary journey together. They love Jesus and they love his church. And they're sitting here going, what's the best way to love Jesus and love his church? Paul says, it looks like this. Barnabas says, it looks like this. And, and they, they, don't, they just don't know how to resolve it. And a heart that, that is so fearful of broken or lost relationship that we would avoid engaging conflict because something in us tells us that's wrong or that's sinful or I'm going to screw it up and, and this is way too much, way too intense, I just can't do that. That heart misses the actual biblical picture of the gift that conflict is. And I think Luke paints this for us really perfectly. Look how Luke says this. When talking about the conflict, he says, Paul thought best not to take with them. Does that term sound familiar? If you were here last week, 
you'll notice it's the exact same term that Luke uses to describe how the elders discerned the will of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the Jerusalem conflict. This is Luke's shorthand for a leader in the church hearing from the Spirit and seeking to discern the Spirit's will. What this tells us, guys, is that this conflict between Barnabas and Paul is because the Holy Spirit is giving them different bits of wisdom. They're doing their best to discern the Spirit's will, and they're hearing two different things. Hearing two different things. And this is what I think is so amazing about this, is that they're both correct. Not, not just they both have wisdom in what they're saying. These men are both hearing from the Holy Spirit. They've both got the right answer to the solution. You see, Paul is right. John Mark is young. And John Mark has shown that when things get intense, he's not quite up to it. And he's sitting here going, man, this trip was pretty intense the first time around. We don't know how intense it'll be the second time around. Paul has no idea. He has no idea that about halfway through this trip, Jesus is going to appear to him in a vision and say, hey, I know you thought you were just visiting all these churches you already planted, but I actually want you to cross over the ocean into Europe and plant about 15 more churches in pagan places where no one has ever heard the gospel. And I know your last trip took you like eight, nine, ten months. You're actually going to be gone like five or six years this time. So get to it. Paul has no clue that is coming. But the Holy Spirit does. And so the Holy Spirit says, hey, Paul, John Mark, probably not a good, a good fit, this go around. And the Holy Spirit tells Barnabas, hey, Barnabas, John Mark needs to be developed. He needs to be sharpened. He needs to be discipled because he's actually going to be a force for the kingdom. And by the way, Barnabas was correct. John Mark does mature and does grow into a fierce leader for the kingdom. In fact, later in life, he would serve as an associate pastor under the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul when they were serving, leading the church in Rome. And later on, when he was months away from death, writing a letter to Timothy, who he had discipled, one of the things, one of the last things Paul recorded in scripture is, please tell John Mark to visit me one more time. I miss him. I want to see him. I want to be comforted by his faith. And John Mark went on in his ministry to preserve Peter's teaching about the life of Jesus. The gospel of Mark is John Mark's faithfulness to record Peter's teaching about Jesus' life and ministry. Guys, we should be grateful that someone took the effort to disciple young John Mark. Both of these men heard and discerned from the Spirit what was best. And so when they got into it, they were both very confident that they had heard from the Spirit what was best. And that conflict got really intense. And they split. And here's the thing, guys. That was the best possible thing. The best possible thing for the kingdom their intense conflict that involved them ending their ministry partnership. It did, it did everything conflict was supposed to do. 
you got a, a deeper relationship between Paul and Barnabas. Paul would go on later to write when he wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 9, he would write about his deep respect for Barnabas and his ministry. This man walked in unity and relationship and friendship with this man, even when they divided their ministries away from each other. That, that conflict didn't end their friendship. No, that, that conflict clarified their calling in their ministry. It became very apparent that Paul is a man who's willing to make great sacrifices for the work. And it became very apparent that Barnabas is a man who's willing to make great sacrifices to raise up and develop others. And then it clarified the mission. It clarified what needed to be done. Paul needed to go because Jesus had a new work prepared for him. Barnabas needed to go and develop this young man. And this is, I think, the amazing part. It multiplied the mission. I think this is the most beautiful part of this whole thing, guys. Remember, this church joyfully sent them and commissioned them to this new work. Why? Because they were able to see that God was doing something. And at the end of this conflict, there wasn't one mission group going and preaching the gospel and planting churches. There were two. And the mission of God was multiplied. Beloved, this is what godly, spirit-led, healthy conflict can produce. It's deeper relationship, clarified vision, and a furthered, multiplied mission. So the question for us today is as simple as it could be. How do you engage in the conflict in your life? Because Jesus made a way for us from death to life. This is the gospel, right? That our Lord Jesus lived a perfect life, died an unjust death, rose from the dead, ascended on the high, and will one day return. Because of him, you and I, can be forgiven for our sins. We can live our life unto him. And when he returns, he will make all things new and take us into eternity with him. This is the gospel. Part of the gospel is the promise of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of God himself dwells within you and empowers the church, empowers the ministry of the church. Beloved, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. The wisdom and discernment of God dwells within you. You don't think you can handle a little conflict? You've got God on your side to help you navigate conflict. The Spirit of God dwells within His church and empowers His church. So our conflicts can be given over to Him and submitted to Him for His glory. And they can become opportunities to grow in intimacy, grow in relationship, clarify what it is we're doing together, and actually multiply the work God is doing in this world. So I'll ask again, what is your relationship with conflict? How do you view those who have different strategic aims than you for the sake of the kingdom? I think a great way to think about this is this. What are your thoughts on other churches in our community that do things different than us? How strong or negative or judgy are your opinions of those brothers and sisters in the way they are seeking to glorify God and seek and save the lost with him? Or maybe this one. What conflicts has God in his grace put within your life so that you can deepen relationship and further mission that you are just avoiding because you don't like them? 
because they're painful and scary and intense. Where are the places in your life where you are the overgrown two-year-old emotionally demeaning the siding on the back of your garage (laughs) rather than just engaging what God has put in front of you? Guys, conflict is an invitation. So here's what I'm going to do to land us. I'd simply like to do this. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to sing a beautiful song like they do. I'm going to invite you guys to pray. We're going to end our gathering today doing something awesome. We're going to license Drew Roth to the ministry before he goes back to school, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And as part of the way we celebrate that, he's going to lead us in communion to end out our gathering. But I want to end by saying this, guys. You, if you come to Red Tree, if this is your church, you already know this. We end our gathering by coming to the table of Jesus and taking communion. Because communion is a term for unity for coming together. Communion is the invitation of Jesus to come together as one family and eat at his table. And so I would ask you, church, as the song is sung over you, speak to Jesus about the way your heart engages conflict. Speak to him about the judginess that maybe sits in your heart when you consider others who have difference of opinion regarding strategy. Ask him to give you clarity on the broken and unfinished and unhealthy conflicts that are sitting in your heart right now. Guys, we we bring those with us to the table. These unfinished things, these unresolved hurts that sit in us, they don't go away on their own. They don't magic away. I would encourage you, don't, don't take those to the table with you tonight. If there is someone in this space with whom you have unresolved conflict, man, what a great opportunity for you to go and sit with them and tell them that. Ask for their forgiveness. Ask for grace. Be unified together, together at the foot of Jesus at the cross. Maybe you need to come to one of the pastors and pray with them and draw some stuff into the light and start a journey towards actually forgiving and resolving unfinished hurts. Guys, I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to invite you to take this time as the gospel is sung over you and simply ask Jesus very honestly about your relationship with conflict and just see what he tells you. Join with me in prayer. Jesus, you are so good. Your gospel is it's too good to be true the amazing promise you give us. That you made a way for us from death to life. That in you, our sins are forgiven. In you, we get to be not not just forgiven, but actually counted righteous. That your spirit dwells within us. God, it's too good to be true. When we come to that table and we eat, we are proclaiming faith that we believe you're too good to be true to you. God, in whatever way, in whatever way, the curse is keeping us from unity, keeping conflicts, bitterness, judgmentalism, stirring in our hearts and distorting the meal we come to take in faith. God, I pray that you would shine a spotlight on that and that we would be a people who, man, Embrace humility, 
that we would be a people who embrace the opportunity of spirit-filled conflict, to know each other better, to clarify the mission you've called us to, and to see you multiply your impact in this world, God. Meet us, humble us, convict us, encourage us. Church, do the work you need to do with Jesus.